Who would have thought that running away with the circus could lead to a career as a successful filmmaker? Then again, who would have thought that once you hear the story we're about to share, the fact of those two dots connecting, namely clowning and filmmaking, will actually seem inevitable? This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part 1. Clowns, Masks, and Acrobatics Gary Glassman has been making films for more than three decades. Art films, experimental films, and documentary films. Actually, loads of documentary films that have won numerous awards on an extraordinary range of subjects, including Prisoners, Spalding Gray, Building the Wonders of the World, The True Story of Troy, Mayan Kings, Women Pharaohs, Orcas, Dinosaurs, Mummies, and the recent four-part PBS series, Native America, that explores the history and culture of the indigenous peoples of the Americas in the centuries before the arrival of the white man. Gary's path to filmmaking has been twisty, to say the least. The circus, of course, but also education, teaching, prison work, performance, and media technology. Not surprisingly, given our obsession on this podcast, the through line on all of his work has been asking questions, and what else? Telling stories. I, I guess um, fundamentally I consider myself a storyteller. And second to that, my medium is filmmaking. The foundation of it is really storytelling. And it started in my more adult life with circus and street theater and performance and then it moved to stage uh, performance art and site-specific environmental spectacle and then to tv and with tv it was first in the art world and now on international broadcast television as we have noted gary's saga starts with the circus when i ran the arts and corrections program in california my brother in art jim carlson the art czar at san quentin established a rich and wonderful relationship with the growing circus arts community in the san francisco bay area one might not think of san quentin prison as a hotbed of three-ring circus spectacle but you'd be wrong imagine the exercise yard at q a place where at times prisoners literally did battle filled with dozens of nascent jugglers throwing three, five, even seven balls solo and in pairs out there being cheered on by their friends and even enemies. It was both inspiring and surreal, to say the least. Encountering the intense commitment of San Quentin's circus community clued me into the transformational power of the circus arts and its profound and historic culture. So much so that I'm always on the lookout for artists with a little circus in their blood. That was certainly true for Gary Glassman, who became a quick compadre and was inexorably changed by both his encounter with the circus and California prisons, which we'll hear about later. I was a clown in an all-clown circus, and it was probably the most transformative act of my life because I grew up in the Bronx and Buffalo. And as much as I always loved storytelling and TV and film and all that, I never dreamed that I could actually do it and never 
knew anybody who had, but I knew I didn't want a regular life. I went to a, a huge high school in Buffalo, and we were all being tracked for either working the assembly line at the Chevy plant or being a manager at the Chevy plant. And, and I knew I just didn't want to do that. And I went to a very radical college, Goddard College, no grades, do whatever you want. And nevertheless, I thought I was going to go into education because my experience in education was just so horrible. And it was so institutionalized and it was so tracked in a certain way that I thought there's got to be a better way. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll start a school and try to reach kids at a young age and give them the, the opportunities that I never thought that I had. Anyway, I started in preschool education and I was radicalized through politics of the Vietnam War and started getting more into politics. And Salvador Allende was elected as a socialist president of Chile. And I decided I'm going to go down there and study the education system and the transformation of the education system under a socialist government from a capitalist government. And uh, I was on my way down and I was in uh, Cuernavaca, Mexico, taking a course and the coup happened in Chile. So I went back to college. I went back to Goddard and I didn't know what I was going to do. And there was this uh, clown troupe that came to perform. Their performance was just well, transformative for me because they were speaking to me on a level that was just so primal. They spoke to basic human emotions of love and jealousy and greed and, and making me laugh, making everybody laugh. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to reach people on that kind of level. And I was very fortunate because they were invited to become theater in residence at, at Goddard. And I took their class. It was clowns, masks, and acrobatics. And um, no brag, I was the best in the class, you know, so. It touched a part of me in a way that I had never been reached and gave me a form of expression that I never knew I had. And it changed my life. I went into performance from, from there and I joined the circus. They invited me to join them. And so we toured the States and the world. I was with them for about three years. And that uh, was great, yeah. As Gary mentioned, his circus experience morphed into street theater and site-specific spectacle work, which eventually led to his return to school as an MFA student at UCLA's theater directing program. As I indicated, this next chapter led to a serendipitous detour into prison work by way of a program called UCLA Arts Reach, run by our now mutual friend, Susan Hill who, by the way, you can learn more about in episode 30 of Change the Story, Change the World. I had gone to UCLA to get a, uh, an MFA in directing, and I produced this stage play, and there was somebody in the audience who was running an arts program out of UCLA, and she had some grant money and said, hey, would, would you like to do some shows in prison? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> Me and my brother, Stephen, and our good friend, Eugene uh, Palmer, we had performed at under the name of the Traveling Energy Band. That was 
our, our big environmental spectacle, site-specific uh, performance pieces that we would do on stilts and puppets and uh, masks and all that. And we put together a, a performance and toured some prisons. And it only dawned on me that we were in prison when they were about to pull the curtain on us and we were hearing all the, the, the sounds of the guys in prison. And I immediately started thinking about what's the difference between us on this side of the curtain and the guys on the other side of the curtain, the people on the outside of the prison and the people on the inside of the prison. And that's what got me into the whole idea of trying to explore it deeper. Part two, the great equalizer. Now, Gary had always been a fan of the movies, but given the film world's seemingly impervious corporate presence and the staggering costs, he never imagined he could become a part of it. That is, until something called the Video Home System, or VHS, was introduced to the world by the JVC Corporation at the tail end of the 20th century. Ask your dealer to let you compare the JVC VHS with other systems. You'll JVC the difference. I didn't have the means to make films. It was very expensive. And then the great innovation in my life was all of a sudden VHS came out. And it, to me, it represented the democratization of production and distribution. It became more accessible to more people, both in terms of the mainly the watching of it. Everybody had a VHS recorder player in their house and uh, they were used to it. And it, what they were playing it on was the same TV screen that they were getting high-end broadcast programs on. So you could take a picture of your birthday party and uh, pop it in the VHS player and it comes on the screen right after watching the State of the Union address from the president. So the screen became the great equalizer. And then you couple that with the production aspect of it, which became more and more accessible as well. And VHS leveled the field in terms of putting whatever you want on the TV. You could essentially do the same things that the professionals were doing with this consumer equipment. So here's a connection with clown and circus, or at least the way clown fed my life was that th this idea that it could tap into a place that I never knew existed or bring out an aspect of me and that I never knew I had. So all of a sudden, here was the possibility of tapping into that with the technology and trying to make it more accessible. And again, that sort of screen as the great equalizer, I thought, ah, this could make the president and somebody like a prisoner equal in the same space. And so I started thinking about prisoners and uh, wonder if I could tap into whatever it was that I was tapped into from for me with clowning and <laughs> tap into that aspect of people who are locked up and free some of that expression in them and use the VHS technology to bring it out into the world. At this point in Gary's life, a number of critical pieces came together, setting the stage for his transition from theater work to documenting and sharing stories on the screen. 
Driven by the idea that video could be a democratizing equalizer, he immersed himself in VHS technology. Because it was new and evolving, the only way to test its capabilities and limitations was to learn by doing. Which he did by exploring the medium with fellow artists like monologist Spalding Gray and multimedia sculptor Jonathan Borofsky. His collaboration with Borofsky took him back into the California prison system, where he and Jonathan approached me in my role as Director of Arts and Corrections with a simple but radical idea. Why don't we let our incarcerated citizens tell their own story? In one scene from the film, which was called Prisoners, Borofsky describes his motivation as he motors across the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge towards San Quentin. Why am I doing this? Why am I going to talk to prisoners? Well, we are all learning to be free, but these are people who make our lives a lot less free. They make us lock our doors and put bars on our windows and worry about our own safety as well as the people we love. They create fear in our life. But I know these people are human beings, not that different than myself, and I feel for them. They have to live their lives locked up in cement boxes. What a waste of life. They couldn't have been born this way. Something has happened in their lives, in their minds. What can I learn from these people? What does it mean to be free? One young woman answered this way in response to Borofsky's question about what she missed most. What do you miss the most by being in here? My daughter. Mm. The things I'm missing in her life. I don't really think much about anything else other than her, you know. What else might you miss aside from your daughter, which is obviously so big that it gets in the way of any other answer? Uh, I guess living a real life, not feeling like uh, I'm just existing, you know. Uh, getting up in the morning and going to the store if I want to, or um, living. Mm -hmm. Because you don't live in here, you just exist day after day. You don't really make decisions for yourself in here. You can't. Um, Think about what you're going to do tomorrow because really you already know what you're going to do, the same thing you did today. So I guess just live. And for these four gentlemen who appear in the film as the group Love Express, love and freedom are inseparable. It's bigger every day. And I've got to get of it. Memory, sweet memory, so sweet memory. The release and distribution of prisoners made a powerful statement that was both poignant and disturbing. 
It laid bare the sorry state of the prison industrial complex in the words of the people most affected. It gave men and women living in what was becoming the world's largest prison system a human presence and a voice. It also took that message to some very interesting places and planted a seed for Gary and the Arts and Corrections program that took us in a radical new direction. And so it's in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art and the um, Pompidou Center uh, in, in Paris. But that opened our eyes, John and my eyes, to life in the prison. And, and it was out of that experience that you invited me to write a grant for creating a, the prison video workshop. <laughs> so thank you for doing that. I never would have really thought about doing anything long-term in the prison had it not been for you and the arts and corrections program that, that you were running. I think it's important to point out here that arts and corrections was and still is a regular ongoing program that is supported by both the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation and the California Arts Council with a significant presence in every prison in the state. That said, I want to emphasize that the Prison Video Workshop was a unique, one-of-a-kind chapter in the California Arts and Corrections story that truly challenged conventional thinking about art, video, and incarcerated artists in both the prison system and the art world. I would go into the prison and I would feel so optimistic. And, and it just seems like, how can you go into a prison and feel optimistic? But I think it was because there, I was given the opportunity to connect with people who we consider the most despicable garbage, and we lock them away. And I was given the privilege of connecting with the best parts of them and giving them the opportunity to express themselves. And um, it was inspiring to see what they had to say and, and how they did. And the amazing thing about it was that, I mean, I think we just don't think that much about the power of media anymore because it's so prevalent. There's more, there's more technology in our pockets now than, than I had going into the prison, working with the men and women there. We've become just jaded to it, or we just take it for granted. But it's, there was something just very basic about the idea that if you could create an image of yourself on the screen that you would feel good about, then you could create that image for yourself in life. And it was totally transformative. I saw it. I mean, the people who participated in the arts program and this video workshop, they showed up for class. And, and when they got out, they more than likely were able to stay out. It was a transformative experience for them. Another interesting thing about these workshops is that Unlike the new video arts programs that were sprouting up in universities, Gary's students had very few preconceptions about what was being referred to in art circles as video art. These men and women were truly unencumbered by questions about what was innovative or cutting edge that were already rising up in the emerging discipline. Gary's approach in the workshop was straightforward. Let's establish a safe place where these budding video artists can explore their own stories. The results were wide-ranging and often surprising. A production called Walking Smooth is a case in point. In this clip, 
a workshop artist from the California Institution for Men sits behind a desk in front of a map of the world. As he looks up into the camera, logo for the CIM Evening News flashes on the screen. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's good to be back in the studio again with you. This reporter, with the help of officials at CIM Chino, implanted himself deep within the prison population, taking on the guise of a regular inmate. Armed with 15 cartons of camel cigarettes, the only prison currency, I was housed in a normal dormitory setting and given a bunk and locker. My home for a week was Pine Hall. Yes, friends, I became, as they say, in prison vernacular, a homeboy. This is what I learned. Depending on the various weekly menus for meals to be served in the chow hall, along with the cycles of how much heat was being put on the culinary by the institution staff, mountains and mountains of food at enormous cost to the state of California was in fact being smuggled out and sold on the yard by the private inmate population. It appears that the inmate population will do almost anything to avoid eating in the chow hall. This is a sample of what can be bought on the yard. A 12 to 15 pound roast beef pre-cooked, five to six packs. Sweet rolls when baked in packages of two, one pack of camels. Turnovers when baked in packages of four, one pack. Vegetable variety packs, two packs. And then let me continue on down this list that I have for you. Loaves of bread, peanut butter in three pound cans, coffee grounds in a 30 pound can will cost you 10 packs. A double burger with all the trimmings, roast beef sandwiches with all the trimmings, graham crackers in, in boxes of three, a case of 96 small packaged cereals, that'll cost you three packs, 100 cartons of milk coming out at one time, only two packs, flats of eggs, three packs of cigarettes, and finally a large can of tuna for only two packs of cigarettes. It is this reporter's considered opinion that with enough cigarettes and armed with a common household electric iron for cooking, one would never have to go to the chow hall to eat, no matter how long his stay was at CIM. In conclusion, let me say that it is indeed true there that he with the most cigarettes in the end wins. In the week that I spent in the hell hole of Pine Hall, I gained 20 pounds and spent my entire 15 cartons of cigarettes. Here's another segment from Walking Smooth called Talking TV. Tony came to class one night furious about a parole hearing that had not been ruled in his favor. We directed his energy into creating one of my favorite exercises, talking TV. <laughs> you know what sucks? The scene opens with one of Gary's students well, standing alongside a big box old school television, having an animated conversation back and forth with another image of himself. What's I mean, so really it? sucks. What do you mean, really sucks? I went to my 115 hearing today, and uh, yeah, well, you got a hearing, hearing agent called me over there. And, what, you can't hear or something? 
What's going on yeah, here, Tony? I did interview with him. Yeah? Did you get the job? Well, did you? <laughs> I don't know. He smelled. He didn't have the right cologne on, you know? What did uh, it smell like? Uh, his shoes were untied. You know? His I shoes mean, uh, were untied. Jesus, he should buy a pair of slip-ons or something. <laughs> his old lady probably looks like uh, <laughs> the fat lady that sings or something. I mean, the guy was so, so unhappy. <laughs> oh, me unhappy? You look unhappy? <laughs> no, I'm not unhappy. Sure looking to me. You know, if life uh, throws you a bunch of lemons, make lemonade, man. Isn't that what all the lemons say? Don't you remember them? Yeah, all right, all right. Huh? All right. <laughs> yeah, man. You so uh, anyway, this guy gives me 30 days for uh, for for being sick. I went to the hospital instead of going to work one day. You know. What do you get and, if you uh, die? Uh, they write me a 115, <laughs> and they call it a walk away uh, return thing. You act like you didn't like that one, man. <laughs> What are you shaking your head for, man? Huh? Hey, you know, we make our own movies. We're the writers, we're the directors, we're the producers, right. we're the actors. I you understand know? that. We create our own, own but life, I'm going man. along with you. Oh, you got to, man. That's the only way we can survive together. Because huh? life sucks. You and me. Life doesn't suck, Tony. Come on, let me tell you about it, man. Come on, hey, where are you going? Hey, I want the script rights to this, man. Hey! Gary's success with his original prison video workshops both expanded to other prisons and prompted similar efforts for other institutionalized populations. I did similar projects with other marginalized populations. One of the uh, other projects that I did for a number of years, I was in the, pr I was in the prisons for about five years. And uh, one of the other TV projects I did was at Children's Hospital in, in Los Angeles. And, and uh, having come out of the prison experience. We expanded that program. We used the model that I created at uh, California Institution for Men, and we got more grants, and I was able to seed a number of other media projects throughout the California correctional system. And I called it the Prison Television Network because we were able to actually bring VHS tapes from one prison to another, and they would play it on their closed circuit TV systems, and there, there was that kind of institutional TV exchange going on throughout the whole system. At the Children's Hospital, it was a little easier. They're not in prison, they're, they're, but they're in the hospital. And the hospital already had a closed-circuit TV system there. I created a project at uh, Children's Hospital, and I called it CHTV right from the beginning, Children's Hospital Television, and I outfitted a gurney with all this production equipment. I had, a, at this time, I, we, we had moved to High 8, which was even better than VHS, was a higher quality. And I had an Amiga computer that interfaced with the High 8 edit system. And we had monitors and, you know, cameras. And I wheeled that, that gurney around. I would do things either in the playrooms with, with a group of kids, or I would go bedside with some kids who couldn't come out. And, and they would make these tapes, and we, and we put it on the, the closed-circuit system. But in terms of the transformative power in the hospital, that was amazing because what happened was by participating in making media, it became sort of a way of the children transforming their relationship to even their own health and their doctors. 
Back in October of 2021, I interviewed Jill Sankey, the director of the University of Florida's Arts and Medicine program, for episode number 33. Her work over the past 30 years, particularly the clinical research they've done, reinforces Gary's understanding of how arts participation can dramatically change a person's relationship with their own healing. We learned in a a study, we interviewed all 31 members of the nursing staff on a medical surgical unit. We dubbed one phenomena that we identified as the happy patient, happy staff effect. Patients (laughs) described, if my patients are happy, I'm happy. And if I can Mm. send an artist in, my patients are going to be happy. And that makes my job easier. And it helps me take better care, you know, of my patients. They were asking the artists to come in when their patients needed distraction and relaxation. They also recognized things like from a clinical perspective, they noticed that blood oxygen saturation rate would go up. Gary shared a story about his work in the children's hospital that really drove this home. We were doing a, a, a very simple intervie- interviewing workshop, teaching the kids were interviewing each other. We were sitting around in a circle, basically passing a microphone around and asking each other questions. And this uh, one girl puts the microphone up in front of the face of this other girl and asks her some very basic questions, and the girl answered it. And it was a li- little bit of a back and forth exchange. And meanwhile, I'm seeing this woman in the back of the room just start crying and I'm going to get all choked up (laughs) just telling the story. So I went over to her afterwards and said, did we do something that upset you? And she said, no, that was my daughter. And she's, she has, she was in a coma for months. And this was the first time she's spoken. It was incredible. Just by putting the microphone in, in front of her, she spoke. And I'm not saying it's, it's not, that in itself, I'm sure she's get, she was getting the great care and all that, but that was the spark that broke through. That's where, the, that's where the optimism comes. Where the pessimism comes, where I get down and pessimistic, is maybe because I know what's possible and that we just don't do it. But the optimism comes from seeing what is possible. And it's, it's not rocket science. It's just really being engaged. I do a lot of these, uh, a lot of my films have been Secrets of the Parthenon or Secrets of This or That. And how did they manage to do, how did they build that, this perfect building in without any computers and motors and in just nine years? How did they do that? What's the secret? The secret to the secret is there is no secret. It's just vision and political and human will. It's creativity for sure. But it's all sharing. It's sharing a vision and saying, let's do that. Let's do it and let's do it together. Part three, Providence. In 1996, after his wife accepted a job in Providence, Rhode Island, Gary launched Providence Pictures there with producer Mark Eckkind. Since that time, Providence has produced more than 50 films for clients, such as PBS, the Discovery Channel, the BBC, the History Channel, that have garnered numerous awards. As we mentioned earlier, the list of subjects and stories is extraordinarily wide-ranging, including Egyptology, forensic science, ancient architecture, the Bible, dinosaurs, battery technologies, DNA, orchids, and archaeology. 
Given Gary's inquiring nature, it's no surprise that most of these shows pose a question, like, what really happened to Troy, and how did they build the Parthenon and the Sphinx, and what can science tell us about the stories in the Bible? I love what I do, and because it gives me a vehicle for being curious and diving into subjects where I can become an expert for about six months or so, or a year. And, and believe me, I've forgotten a lot more than I've ever known. I always loved the story of Michelangelo carving the David. And they say, well, how did, how did you do that? And he said, well, I just chipped away what wasn't David. And, and I, I do think about making documentaries, and I, it's, it's similar. Nothing is ordained. Nothing is really destined. We can create our own lives, our future, and we can use our pasts to create the possibility of, of a future as well. And in, in, in many ways, that's what my documentaries do. In 2015, Providence Pictures was commissioned by PBS to produce a television series that explores the history and culture of the vibrant civilizations that flourished in America prior to the arrival of the white man. It is another world, thriving with a hundred million people, connected by elaborate roads, bridges, and social networks spanning continents, with monumental cities aligned to the heavens. and some of the greatest civilizations on Earth. This is America more than 500 years ago. I started pitching that project back in, I think, the year 2000. And it was finally commissioned in 2015. And then it was broadcast in 2018. And it's been rebroadcast a number of times since then. It's telling a story that's not mine. I'm not Native American. And these days, there is a strong importance and weight put on who's telling the story. And just listening to prisoners telling their own story or children in the hospital telling their own story, I've always felt like a facilitator of people telling their own story. And even before the current climate, where people have become much more aware of that, it's always been at the heart of my work. So when I approached this Native America series, the first thing I did was hire Native American producers to work on it. And we spent our whole first year reaching out to Native American leaders, faith keepers, community people, cultural protection officers, and describing the basic idea of what we wanted to do, asking them if they wanted to participate and what story would they like to tell and how would they like to tell that story. And I set the basic parameters of it with this idea that I wanted to learn and bring to an audience what we don't know about Native America. And so I really focused on the time before contact with Europe. And it was incredible what, certainly what I learned and what I hope people who watch the program learn was that there's uh, incredible authenticity, reliability, his, historical weight, 
to the oral tradition and and obviously Native Americans telling their own story. And and I think that's what the the series does. It's Native Americans telling their own story and it's a glorious one in terms of what was here and what still is here. Native Americans create America's first democracy that later inspires the United States Constitution. Shape Mississippi Swampland into the largest pyramids on the planet. Carve Andean mountain slopes into fields that feed millions. And domesticate plants that now provide 60% of the world's food. They elevate America's natural beauty into spiritual beliefs that echo across 10,000 years. and dig deep into those beliefs to survive the worst loss of life from disease and genocidal warfare in history. Even though we're telling a story of the past, it's told by contemporary people and peoples, and, and many Native American peoples are living with the traditions that have been carried on for over 10,000 years. And those principles and that way of life, it really is in harmony with nature. The idea that we as humans are just part of nature and we need to be respectful of our place in nature and be stewards of protecting the earth. And if, if certainly if there's one important lesson to come from that, it's that more now more than ever we are not dead we're often referred to in the history books in the past tense but here we are in the present and we're going full force you know we're still here i think it achieves a lot of what i want from making these kinds of films and that is that that it is meaningful it can open people's eyes and minds to what's really right in front of them, but they don't really pay much attention to. Before we signed off, Gary shared a personal anecdote reflecting on the nature and power of stories that brought his story full circle. My, my parents died a while ago, both my mother years ago and my father in 2015. And uh, there were these boxes that I had packed up when they had moved from Buffalo out to California. And they ended up in my sister's garage. And then she just said, I'm sending them to you. You do deal with them. So all these boxes showed up and in the boxes were family archives. And I'll call them archives, but they were photographs and documents. And during this pandemic, I started going through them and I found the ship passage for my grandfather as a 12-year-old boy with a picture of him on this document. And it's in Turkish because he's from Greece, but Greece was under Ottoman control and so I found that. And I actually have the blanket that his parents wrapped around him so he could stay warm in steerage on that ship voyage coming over. I think about maybe someday telling my personal story, which is so tied to my ancestors. 
And I, I think the thing about that, I'll tie it back to clowns and uh, prisoners, is that the more personal we get, the more universal our message. And, and it's the only genuine way to reach people. One of the friends that I made along the way in making Native America, he's the former chair of the Lummi Nation in the Pacific Northwest. And he told me something like, it, it can be a long distance between the mind and the heart, but the distance is much shorter between the heart and the mind. And I, I, I think that's the power of story. And it's the clowns again. They touched me on a level that I can't explain. It's something in the spirit, in the heart. And, and that creates possibility and new vision. It's the possibility of transformation, which are always the best stories. I'm going to close with a short meditation on the starting place for this episode, which, of course, is with the clowns. When I refer to clowns, I'm not talking about a McDonald's marketing character. I'm talking about those ancient and essential provoking characters whose antics and tall tales help us reflect on our own jumbled stories with the clarity of backwards wisdom. For me personally, clowns and all their iterations, the trickster, the fool, coyote, Hayoka, the tramp, hold a special place in my pantheon of creative change agents. Wherever you go in the world, there is the Joker or Anansi or Egu messing with what is, making or remaking the world with an act of creative disruption that is powerfully mysterious and mischievous and inspiring, more often than not, spawning more questions than answers. In other words, doing their job and, like Gary Glassman, taking risks, challenging assumptions, questioning conventional wisdom, and helping to change the world one story at a time. And as this story comes to a close, we'd like to thank Gary and his community of story makers and tellers for another fine episode. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our work through this podcast and our publications is to provide a chronicle of art and community transformation for others to be inspired and learn from. To do this, we need your help. So to all you listeners, thanks again for your eager ears and a shout out and a special thanks to Judy Munson for her genius musical contributions and Andre Nebe for his text editing prowess. For this episode of Change the Story, Change the World, this is Bill Cleveland saying, stay well, do good, and spread the good word.